Hi, and welcome to another edition of S'mores by Fireside. As always, you can learn more at meetfireside.com. You can click on the S'mores tab to watch all of these episodes in video form, and you can download them as a podcast from wherever you like to get your podcasts from. Today, I am joined by Dr. Jason Miller from PostureWorks. Would you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a doctor of chiropractic, and I have a postdoctorate specialty in a field called chiropractic biophysics. I'm the co-founder of both PostureWorks and NutriWorks. My business partner and I have offices both in San Francisco and in Denver, Colorado. So I think the word chiropractor is probably a little bit misunderstood by a lot of people, certainly for those fortunate enough that haven't needed the care. Can you give us the real version of what it means? Yeah, absolutely. So chiropractic is a drugless health profession. So we typically don't prescribe any kind of pharmaceuticals. And we're focused on the physical and structural aspect of an individual's health. There's really three different parts of our health. There's our mental, emotional health. There's our nutritional, biochemical health. And then there's our physical, structural health. And we're all breaking down over time. You know, our body is a very complex machine. And like any machine over time, it starts to break down and have wear and tear. So chiropractors are involved with trying to slow down that breakdown process, maintain as much life and and use out of the individual's body as possible, and then simultaneously work with an individual on how do we reduce risk of any kind of disease processes starting to develop And so, you know, we really try to focus on being proactive and prevention oriented as much as possible, teaching people about different aspects of their lifestyle. So do you get then patients that come in because something's happened to them and also then because they want to be preventative? Yes, I I would say that the vast majority of our patients find their way to us because they are already in some kind of a crisis situation we're good at backtracking those situations. However, I think that, you know, we would be, or we would better serve the individuals out there in our community in general, if we were able to help people to understand that before you start having a really serious problem, you should come in and do some maintenance so that you don't have a huge problem. And in that regards, I think that chiropractic is somewhat where dentistry was around 40, 50, maybe even 60 years ago, mm-hmm. where for the most part, people didn't go see a dentist unless they had a massive toothache. And, you know, at that point, they were really, you know, drilling teeth out and pulling them. And we've learned as a society that, you know, if we practice good dental hygiene and see a dentist on a prevention basis, we can maintain our teeth much longer. The same thing is really true for our spine and our musculoskeletal system. If we do just a little bit of spinal hygiene and go in for some routine maintenance work, we could prevent a lot of the problems that are really plaguing our society, which, you know, in in our society, at least in the U.S. and in most industrialized society, about 80% of the adult population is dealing with some kind of ongoing musculoskeletal pain, lower back pain, neck pain, or headaches. So... We've got a little bit of work to do in in teaching the population and and just people in general that, you know, we should be more proactive and not wait until we have an alarm going up in our body, which is what we would call pain, and instead do some things to just maintain so that we don't have as many problems. Wow, 80%. As you and I have got to know each other and I've been in your 
practiced multiple times now, do you have posters up and things that uh, that show people kind of hunched over staring at a phone? Is sure. that 80% a number that's been quite consistent throughout history, or is it worse now because of our habits? It is absolutely getting worse. Um, the 80% number, the first time I saw that was probably around 15 years ago. And that seems to have been holding true in regards to pain. What is getting even worse is actually the degenerative processes and how fast are we starting to see these problems. And I think that has a lot to do with you know, how much time we're all sedentary and hunching over laptops, hunching over our cell phones. We don't think about the constant and relentless force of gravity that's pulling us down. And we're actually finding degenerative processes starting inside of elementary school kids now because we're spending so much time in forward flexed postures that asymmetrically load the spine. And that's what really triggers the processes that we think of as being part of the aging process. Degeneration like disc decay or osteoarthritis. We have more opportunity to develop those types of conditions as we age, but they're not because of our age. Otherwise, all of our joints would become arthritic at the exact same time. All of our discs would bulge and herniate at the same time, and that never really happens. It's because of abnormal forces, stresses and strains being placed asymmetrically on the spine, and that's why we're starting to see it now develop in, in elementary school kids. So the pain levels have been fairly consistent. The degenerative processes have been skyrocketing, and we've been seeing both the, the pain levels and degenerative processes start to appear in younger cohorts or, or younger populations. Wow. I, uh, I'm being very self-conscious now about, uh, I know you're seeing <laughs> me over the camera, like, am I, am I sitting up? Sitting up right? Okay, so I know your practice, for instance, you focus on on treating both. I know I came to you, I'm quite happy to say it, because I wanted to work on my posture. When you think as a business owner about those two very different paths, one's triggered by an urgent need to deal with pain, the other is probably something that people build to the motivation over a long period of time. Are those patients very different for you business-wise in terms of either revenue or how you market to them, how you handle them, etc.? Yeah, absolutely. You know, a person that already is in a crisis situation, they have a whole lot more work to do to try to not only stop the crisis, but then try to rebuild their structure and build more strength and stability back into their body. And so that's going to be a lot more work on their part and on our part to help them accomplish those types of goals. Whereas a person that has started to adopt a more prevention-oriented and proactive mindset, they usually don't have nearly the amount of work. We, we teach them you know, different types of spinal hygiene techniques and tools, stretches, exercises, and we customize that to them and how they're starting to break down over time based off of some unique things that they, they might have inside of their own anatomy or different injuries that they've been in over time. But it's, it's much less work both on their part and our part to prevent a problem than it is to deal with the problem. So certainly the vast majority of our practice, I would say right now it's, it's probably around 85% of our practice are people that have, were never taught really how to take care of their spine and therefore they have neglected their spine. Mm -hmm. And now they find themselves in a situation where they need to try to backtrack the problem. And so that is the vast majority of our practice. We try to, to market to both sides of the coin. The challenge is, is that, you know, in an industrialized society, we've been really trained to think 
that we are supposed to go about our daily lives and, and not worry about any aspects of our health until we have a crisis and then go to some expert to deal with that crisis for us. With trying to market to people on the proactive and prevention side of things, it's a bit more challenging because we're really budding the way that our society has been trained to go about their daily lives and just wait until you have a problem and then go find a person with a white coat to solve it for you. Right. Um, and I, I think that that's uh, probably something that was designed intentionally and is certainly a, a real disservice to our communities in general. Because the fact of the matter is, is that there's no better health expert than you yourself. And you should never put your own health into an expert's hands because the expert, they don't have the ability to live your life for you. Certainly you should partner with somebody who might know a little bit more about things for you, but you really need to, and, and each individual needs to understand what does it take to maintain our health and to keep us strong and vital and healthy and, and not just wait for a big problem. And I think that's one of the reasons why we have the just absolutely downward spiral of health status in the industrialized nations is because we've lost completely We've lost track of the fundamentals of what does it take to maintain one's health? It's completely off our radar. In fact, most people don't even know what health is. If you ask people like, how do you define health? What would you say, Dax? What does it mean to be healthy? What does it mean to be healthy? That's actually an interesting question. I guess thoughts that come to mind is that I don't have disease. I don't have things that are causing me pain or discomfort or are affecting my life and that I think I live a lifestyle that is generally in line with what my body was designed for. Good. I like where you ended there. You okay. started where most people would start is, well, it's when I don't have a disease or I don't have a, a, an active complaint right now. I and mean, then you follow it up with that you're living a lifestyle that's conducive to what your body needs. And that second part I really, really like. The first part that you said is the most common answer. It's when you don't have a disease process. And in fact, I haven't done this recently, but it used to, used to be that if you Googled definition of health, it said a state of the body absent of disease. And I think that's absolutely backwards. It's completely backwards because disease, where the word comes from, dis-ease, is a lack of ease, a lack of balance, a lack of health within the body. And the way that I look at it, it's kind of like light and dark, right? You know, darkness is the absence of light. You can't go into a dark room and remove the darkness and have light in there. So health, to me, it's the optimal function of our body, organs, and systems. And when we start to lose optimal function, then we're in a state of disease, disease. And that's when we start having problems. And the challenge that we have with our traditional healthcare system is that it's all focused on how do we manage those disease processes mm -hmm. instead of managing the cause of those disease processes, right? Which is why, you know, we've got this ever spiraling problem that's getting worse and worse and worse over time, even though we've been talking about it in industrialized nations for decades and decades, like how, like this is getting worse, the stats are getting worse every single year, what do we do? And we throw more money and more pills at the problems. But the challenge is, is that none of those solutions are aimed at how do we restore health and balance and optimal function back to the body? 
Instead, they're how do we shortcut the system? How do we you know, cut something out? And how do we manage this disease process? So an individual can go about their life continuing to do things that are probably not all that great for them, but we can also continue to sell them the same solution over and over and over for the rest of the It's fascinating. I've never heard anyone describe it that way. Now, what that makes me think is, as listeners can probably tell from my accent, I'm British originally, although my sister will happily tell you I now sound more American than British. <laughs> and of course, in England, we have a very highly successful national health service, mm. and we don't have a lot of the same problems that a nation like the U.S. does with an entirely privatized problem in that we don't have a huge pharmaceutical lobbying industry, right? Medicine is not industrialized to the same profit processes. I would like to think that the National Health Service here has more of an overall investment in preventative care because it actually is worth its while investing in those things because it will ultimately save down the line. I don't know if it actually does though or not. And I'd like to do some research after that after this to see uh, somewhere like Canada that's closer to you, you might have more familiarity with. Do you see that in nations more that have socialized medicine? The Where you see with socialized medicine is easier access to the same types of treatments. But when you look at the statistics on, okay, you know, how many people are dying from heart disease, diabetes, strokes, cancer, things that we know are caused by our environment that we put ourselves into, Across the industrialized nations, whether they have socialized medicine or not, these stats are getting worse. Now, they are in the U.S., they're probably the worst. Um, in fact, they are the worst. But unfortunately, having socialized medicine doesn't necessarily negate the, the overall problem. Because, again, you know, what most healthcare, which I would, I would term, you know, crisis care, is really reactionary based. And what we would say in most, even in socialized medicine as prevention oriented healthcare is actually early detection instead of true prevention. And instead of uh, like having really good campaigns on teaching people the proper ways to eat and avoid, you know, eating just food like products, which, you know, certainly in America, that's the vast majority of people's diet isn't food anymore. It's, it's a food like product. My understanding is, is that's still the case in, in most of the nations that do have socialized medicine. There's a bigger focus on early detection in some of those areas, but I still think that we need to get you know, more focused on, okay, well, what does our body require in order to express its genetic health potential? Mm. All disease processes can get traced back to one of two things or usually a combination of them both either deficiency, there's something that our body requires in order to express its genetic health potential, or toxicity. There's something coming into our body that our body simply cannot process and eliminate fast enough. And all disease processes, when looked through that lens, you can trace back to you know either deficiency or toxicity or a combination of the two. So we've got a lot of work to do, and I think that that's, that's true in all societies. And, you know, having socialized healthcare, I'm not opposed to it, but I don't think that it's necessarily going to get to the root of the problem. Right. It doesn't sound like it from what you, the way you were describing it there. I look at the mental health growth that's happened over the last five to 10 years, I suppose, as an encouraging sign. 
mm. that perhaps as societies we're more welcome and comfortable with the idea of some of these preventative steps. I think about how I grew up, which you know I'm not criticizing. I was certainly brought up to get on with it, you know, which is a very uh, a very hardy attitude to have, right? Life has a necessity to get on with it. Right. Getting on with it, of course, doesn't leave a lot of room or certainly doesn't give any statement that says, well, getting on with it also means that you can make that easier for yourself by building in some of these preventative things. And I would say generally in society 20 years ago to talk about going to a therapist or to talk about meditating would have probably been scorned upon by a very large percentage of society. Maybe people would have been really rudely written off as a hippie or some such term, I think, that would have been common for people to throw out there. Sure. Whereas now, at least with mental wellness, it seems that it's become kind of more acceptable and more normal with apps like Headspace and things out there. That's what it sounds like you were hoping to see with your industry going forward, as you said at the beginning. Yeah, and I think that we are already seeing that compared to, you know, where they used to call chiropractic what's called complementary and alternative medicine, or CAM for short, was a very small percentage of the population. And it's still relatively a small percentage of the population, but we are seeing it increase. And then we're also seeing more collaboration between the medical profession and the chiropractic profession. You know, a good example of that is about eight years ago, I started teaching at UCSF School of Medicine in both their pharmacy program as well as inside of their integrative medicine program. I teach a a part of a course on diabetes management and I teach part of a course on biomechanics of the spine. And, you know, 10 years ago, it would have been absolutely unheard of for a chiropractor to walk into a medical school and teach a class. Oh, interesting. And so, you know, I I think we're seeing more collaboration. One of my biggest sources of patients is from referrals from, you know, different types of providers that are out there. So there is definitely a, a change. And I think that part of that is coming from the population in general, right? You know, the, there's a bigger demand because, you know, I think we are starting to realize just, you know, as the various industrialized societies out there, that we do need to kind of step up on our own. And, you know, at least in in the U.S., you know, you'll watch a commercial about, you know, one drug, and then you'll immediately right afterwards, you'll see another commercial from a law firm, you know, asking if you're suffering from this, this or that, and did you take this drug, you might be entitled to this class action lawsuit. I mean, that's so common in, at least in America, that I think that's one of the reasons why people are starting to look at, okay, well, what are the other alternatives that are out there and learning more about mindfulness and learning more about prevention-oriented healthcare. And that's also really deep inside of the schools themselves, the, um, not just like chiropractic schools, but, but medical schools. They're looking at how do you try to change the system to be more proactive as well. The challenge is the system is so large, it's, it's really hard to change it. You know, for example, when something becomes what should be the gold standard evidence-based treatment for a disease process in the medical literature, it usually takes 10 to 15 years for that standard of care to be adopted throughout the hospital system because it's just so hard to change such a big moving system. And by that time, there's been two or three more advances in the standard of care in the literature. 
So we're always 10 to 15 years behind what the literature really says inside of our hospital systems. Such a big, hard-moving machine to adopt new resources. It's an interesting aspect. I think actually British Medical Journal, as well as JAMA, the Journal of American Medical Association, both published that fact that we're about 10 to 15 years behind the standard of care based off the literature. Okay, so what I'm going to take from this conversation is a distinct feeling of fear. (laughs) Well, no, I don't think that we need to be afraid, but we need to also understand that sometimes it is best to try to stay out of the hospital system and be instead as much as possible inside of, you know, the smaller private clinics like like right. myself, like, or, you know, clinics like mine that are small and they're, they're able to implement things faster. As we learn and we, and we read, we don't have to go through as many different hoops to try to implement something. And so, you know, I think where we would be best served as individuals and as people is to, to not be afraid, but to understand where limitations are. And the hospital system is very, very, very good. And this is, this is very true inside of the U.S. for emergency care. You know, the World Health Organization, on a regular basis, they rank how the different nations are doing in different aspects of healthcare. And the U.S. typically comes in number one for emergency care every single time that they do it. But then in regards to healthcare, the U.S. comes in like 27th, even though we outspend everybody out there on it dollar for dollar. So, you know, I think we should utilize those different types of hospital settings for what we know they're really good at, which is emergency care. And if you have a disease process that's getting worse, they're the people to see. But if you want to be more proactive, you probably need to step outside of that system and find a provider that is able to implement knowledge as it becomes available. So, you know, that age-old adage, instead of, you know, being fearful, it's like knowledge is power, seek out that knowledge. And then also understand that, you know, that age-old adage of knowledge is power isn't really true. Knowledge is potential power. Action is where the power truly lies. Well, then we get into the whole other issue of society today, right? Of people have lost sight of the difference between knowledge and something written on social media. Yeah. People have lost critical analysis and understanding. And most people are comfortable living in an echo chamber as opposed to anything that challenges how they feel about something. So I like theory. I, I worry more and more about society from that point of view. I want to switch tracks just for a little minute and talk about the business you have. So you leave chiropractic school. How many years is that? Chiropractic school is three to four years after college, depending on how many courses you take at a time. Okay. And then, so now between then and now you have this very successful PostureWorks business in Denver and in San Francisco. What was the path to that? Why did you decide to do that yourself? You mean to become a chiropractor or? To go down the path of having your own practice and to have the sort of practice that you have. Inside of chiropractic, for the most part, you don't get a choice on if you're going to work in a hospital system or not. Very few hospitals really have chiropractors on staff. And those hospitals that do have chiropractors on staff, they're few and far between. And so for the most part, when you get done with chiropractic school, you know, your options are to go work in some other private clinic as an associate or to start your own practice. Mm. My background before chiropractic 
I have a bachelor's degree in business and economics. And so it, it was kind of natural to me once I, you know, decided to go into healthcare and chiropractic that I wanted to run my own business and my own practice. And so, you know, I also, the, our postdoctorate specialty biophysics, it is something that I knew I was interested in right when I started chiropractic school and I was doing and completing my postdoctorate at the same time as my doctorate. So I kind of two different programs at the same time. And that really helped me with, with launching the business itself. But we didn't really have an option of going and working for somebody else with the type of work that we wanted to do. Um, my business partner and I, Dr. Scott Levin, you know, interestingly enough, it, you know, we're kind of in with the economic climate today is kind of similar to where we were when um, Scott and I started Posture Works, which is in the middle of the 2008 economic collapse. Right. And so, you know, we had we had spent a lot of time putting together our business plan and we got our business plan back from the printer the day of the uh, 777 point stock market crash of 2008, which uh, has now been eclipsed. But at the time, that was the biggest stock market crash of all time. And we were like, well, that's probably not good. And it certainly wasn't. We couldn't to this day. No banker ever saw that business plan. You know, if you hadn't been in business two years or more, they wouldn't even meet with you. So we had to really switch gears and we started in a, in a really small 150 square foot room with just the tools that we had already kind of accumulated throughout chiropractic school. And I also, before um, going to business school, I had worked in construction for a long time. So I built some different types of treatment tools that we needed. We had a whole lot more time than we had resources and money. So I built a lot of things and then we just kept on all of our capital gains just went right back into the practice, right back into the practice of knocking down some walls and expanding and growing our referral base. And we went from 150 square feet to about 3000 square feet in about three years. And we opened up a, another division of our company, NutriWorks, really focused on the nutritional aspect of our health right about that same time, about two and a half years after we um, had first opened our doors. In those early first couple of years, were you kind of a self-believing founder or was it a couple of years racked with this may fail at any moment? Oh, yeah, for sure. <laughs> you know, I think we knew that our abilities exceeded that of most of our colleagues, even though that we were early on because we had uh, the postdoctorate specialty and the ability to make changes in people's health in a more profound way than the average person that was out there. So I think there was definitely times, you know, when we didn't know if financially we would be able to make it happen because, you know, we were, while simultaneously trying to put everything back into the business, also trying to keep food on the table and, and, and a roof over our heads. And so there was definitely times that, you know, we were kind of worried on doing that. And, but we never really had a worry of our ability to provide the care. And so I think we could, we took some solace in that and, you know, we just did some really interesting things. We didn't have a marketing budget, so we couldn't do any, um, you know, traditional marketing. And so, you know, we, we did some kind of like, what we would consider now, I guess, guerrilla marketing and just like coming up with some interesting tactics on how do we spread the knowledge of what we do and get people to send us patients. So that's, you know, an interesting aspect of what we did to really get things going because we didn't have any kind of marketing budget. Right. So I guess that's probably a, maybe a good thing for me to explain, I guess. So one of the 
ways that we really grew the practice is we sat down and we thought, where are the people that need what we do and working with providers that they know and that they trust that we could partner with and not look at how do we take over the treatment for these people, but augment it and add something to it the other original provider wouldn't be able to do. And so, you know, we made a list of people like spinal surgeons, radiologists, x-ray techs, Pilates instructors, yoga instructors, personal trainers, and we created some programs to target those individuals and teach them about spinal biomechanics and how it affected the people that they were already working with so that we would get some good, strong referral sources. And that was the primary way that we grew our practice from, you know, the 150 square foot room to 3000 square feet was by earning trust of people that were already trusted by individuals that needed the type of care that we needed, that we could provide. So, you know, for example, we created a program that we called train the trainers and we would go into 24 hour fitness or crunch and we'd buy all the trainers lunch and teach them about postural displacements and spinal biomechanics and, and pre-frame the whole thing with the fact that, you know, you guys, you're working with these people that are trying to improve their physique and their strength. And I know one of the biggest reasons that you have attrition and that people stop coming is because some of these things hurt. And there's this concept of no pain, no gain that mm-hmm. keeps get being espoused inside of the training world. And quite frankly, you need to stop saying that because it's not true, right? If somebody's hurting, it's because they have some kind of an injury and I can teach you how to identify it and work with those people. And so we would go in and we train the trainers how to look for these things and to screen for different types of postural mechanical problems. And then if they found them, say, hey, we know the right people to partner you up with. And they would send us patients. And while we were working with those patients, we would always make a point to explain why it was so important that they continued to see their trainer. And we did the same thing with Pilates instructors and yoga instructors. And then we also like, we would have networking nights where we would go to a restaurant that we knew was really slow on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night and say, Hey, can we use this room? We don't really have any money to rent this room for you, but I know on a Tuesday night it's empty anyway. So can we use this room and we'll buy dinner for everybody that we can get into this room? And we would go around to, you know, either personal injury attorneys and we'd have a personal injury attorney night or we'd go around to dentists and have a TMJD night because most dentists don't really like working with jaw problems, but they hear about jaw problems all the time from their patients. Temporal mandibular joint, so the jaw joint and dysfunction of it. So pain clicking or popping of the jaw itself, which is a really common problem. And some dentists are equipped to deal with it and like to deal with it. But most dentists, they want to clean teeth and and they want to, you know, work on cavities and and do the things that they really want to do. Most of them don't have an interest in jaw mechanics, but their patients talk about it all the time. So we would go in and teach how the jaw mechanics are tied with the upper cervical spine and postural distortions and show them the data on it and give them a referral pad. And it's like, if you don't want to deal with this problem, we will deal with this problem for you. 
And so we just went around and like identified who are the people that are constantly working with people that have problems that we can solve that they actually can't solve. And how do we provide a solution for them? So that's how we did all of our marketing to begin with. As a marketing guy, I can't help walk around the world and see terrible ads and marketing messages. Sure. Uh, when I talk to somebody who's a barber, for instance, they can't help walk around the world and look at people with terrible haircuts. <laughs> you just walk around the streets noticing every little uh, yes. misplacement, misangle in us all. Most definitely. Most definitely. It's a, it's a, I can't even really get it, go into a 24-hour fitness kind of <laughs> anymore because I have a hard time not going up to somebody and, and saying, hey, you know what, you're hurting yourself by doing it that way. Can I show you another way? And it's just, it, I, I did that a couple of times and it doesn't really go over all that well. <laughs> so, I'm sure it doesn't with the staff. <laughs> you're yeah. just some random guy coming up at the gym. You know, actually, I have gotten some patients out of doing it that way, but uh, I see these types of postural problems everywhere I go. I mean, we're all breaking down. Um, so, we all are. I mean, it's just a matter of how fast and in what way based off of what are we doing to maintain ourselves and what kind of injuries have we been in. Now, when I say injury or trauma, even worse word, most people think about ambulance rides in hospitals. And, you know, certainly those are really bad injuries and really bad traumas. But if you think, you know, if you've ever learned how to ski or to snowboard or you learned how to wakeboard or to ride a bike or you were in football or gymnastics or soccer or you ever were a five-year-old child, you've fallen over a lot. And all of those different things start to break down our structure over time. We're a walking accumulation of injuries and they're all breaking down our body. How do we repair that? That's the ultimate question that we're always trying to answer. And why I love the type of work that we do is everybody's breaking down different. So every new patient that walks through the door is a little bit of a puzzle for me to try to figure out on how can I help understand what's causing some of their main problems and what can I give them to do to rebuild it? And we've, between San Francisco and Denver, just on the posture work side of things, not even counting NutriWorks, We've seen a little over 6,000 patients and we've never given two identical care plans. Everybody's different. And so I really love that aspect of what we do is, you know, we get to work really one-on-one -on -one with each individual person. What's the most effective way to help that individual person? You might be the most enthusiastically passionate individual <laughs> we've talked to so far in this, uh, in this small series. Huh. Well, you seem very much. I, uh, I love what I do. What you do. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing when, um, I think I'm in a really unique profession where, you know, the better that we do from a business standpoint, the healthier, the happier, the more productive and the more fulfilled our individual patients in our community are around us. I love that. And the more that I help individual people, then the more I see that change in their face and the more I want to do it, which is now why I also I, I teach a lot of other chiropractors and PTs how to understand more about biomechanics, how to reverse these processes, how to run a, a, a successful business like this. Right. Um, and that way I get to help even more people. So that's an interesting one. When we talk to a lot of people who are professionals, they will go through their entire field of training and at no point does anybody ever sit them down and give them a class in business, in basic mm. finance or in marketing. Now, you said you did a business and economics major before you did your uh, chiropractic training. Is that true? Do you find a lot of people in your profession 
get the skills to be a chiropractor but leave with real no understanding of how to go about business? The vast majority. When we were in chiropractic school, we had uh, one class on what they called office procedures. I mean, it was like the biggest joke that I was sitting in there and I was just thinking, you know, this is why the chiropractic profession has such an attrition rate because like for the most part, you have to become a business person. You can't go work at a hospital for the most Mm -hmm. part and they have no business training. And so there's a really high attrition rate in chiropractic. About a third of my graduating class, I, I graduated about 12 years ago. And uh, around a third of my graduating class that I'm aware of is no longer working in the profession and they're doing something else. While at the same time, they've got $200,000 worth of student loan debt for, you know, learning this profession. So I think it is a, a huge problem that, you know, most chiropractors have no real background in business and they don't really understand anything besides how to treat their patient. So, I mean, that's a, that's a big challenge for our, for our profession in general. And that's one of the things that, uh, my business partner and I, part of our business model is how do we train other people to be successful? Um, and so we have a residency program inside of our offices that is not only working on, you know, how do you train somebody to really have good clinical skills, but how do you manage a team? How do you motivate a team? How do you maximize revenue, minimize costs? so that when they take their next steps, which might be with us and, and opening up another location or becoming partnered with us in the future, or if they you know, go out then they, on their own, then they can be as successful as possible because we need more people to be successful in this for society and then also for the, you know, this aspect of the profession, the biophysics world really needs to grow and become, to me, it should be the standard of care for all chiropractic. Right. Um, but the theory of a rising tide is why you have the residential program. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Have you ever considered marketing yourself as biophysics as opposed to chiropractic, given there are some perhaps negative or misunderstood connotations to the word chiropractic? What we are is chiropractic biophysics. There's a, another field out there, established field that's biophysics. And so, you know, we do like it, the sign right above my door says chiropractic biophysics. I'm on both of our websites. Everywhere it says chiropractic, it says biophysics right after it. The challenge is, you know, the biophysics community is working on this and doing a lot of marketing to try to teach more people about it. The general public doesn't know that there's a difference between chiropractors that are out there. We don't realize that there's a, a, you know, a difference between this dentist and that dentist. There are, you know, different types of dental techniques that, you know, from the the outside perspective, you don't even know that that exists. Right. It's true with chiropractic. So if you're just marketing to a person that's looking for chiropractic and you overload with chiropractic biophysics, I don't know how successful that would be or not. I don't know, you, would, you would be a better person to, to understand that kind of a dilemma than myself. Sure. Uh, from a business point of view, yourself and Scott at some point needed to make the decision to go from one center in San Francisco to having two with the other one being in, in Denver, Colorado. How was that decision made? What was it based on? And when you look back, do you think you did it about the right time, too early, too late? The biggest reason for opening the Denver office is because this is where I grew up and this is my home. And I always wanted to come back to Colorado. And when Scott and I first opened the practice in San Francisco, the concept was build framework 
that could be reproduced and then go and reproduce it first in Denver and then in, in other locations. And I think we were eight years in when I basically went to Scott and I was like, you know, we decided that we were going to do this at some point when it felt right or when, you know, we had the, the, the perfect model, but our, just our nature, we're never going to feel like we have created the perfect model. We will like, to me, there's no such thing as being a master. There's only the pursuit of mastery. So you should always be learning more. You should always be into implementing more. And Scott and I have always had that same mindset. So, you know, we're, we, I told him, I was like, look, we're never going to get to the point where it's like, okay, this is exactly it. Let's go reproduce it because we're going to, we're going to keep on doing this. We're going to keep on getting better. We're going to keep on reading more journals and we're going to adapt our systems. And so it was more of like a personal decision that was like, it's time. Like I'm, I've been here long enough. And my wife and I were kind of thinking about starting a family and we didn't want to do it in San Francisco. So we made the move and it didn't necessarily feel like the perfect time. But in retrospect, I think that it really was a great time for us to do it because it forced us to start adapting into different types of systems of remote work that I think is you know really important and how do we communicate with each other and run things from different locations. And that is something we never would have done if I would have stayed there. And so, you know, putting ourselves again outside of that box allowed us to start seeing more problems, which allows us to create more solutions. Right. It's a good way to look at it. A lot of businesses learned during the whole COVID pandemic scenario that actually they could not only survive, but thrive as a business being remote. Now, clearly you're in a business where most of your work has to be done kind of face to face. Have there been lessons, though, that as a business you've realized that there are more things than you even thought possible that could be achieved remotely? Absolutely. Most definitely is the case. A big part of what we do, our type of treatment, is provide home care prescriptions for our patients, exercises that are specific to their body and the way that their mechanics are breaking down, very specific stretches called traction and home care tools to be able to do that. I mean, that's a huge component of our practice anyway. Even though, you know, in, in Colorado and in, in San Francisco right now, we're not allowed to see the vast majority of our patients. They have issued, you know, cease orders on all elective care. So we're only able to see emergency care patients in the office, but we're still working with all of our patients remotely. And we've, you know, talked with our patients through, you know, platforms like this and had them, you know, talk. We asked them how their home care is going. We've given them additional pieces of home care that they can do to kind of beef that up. And then if, uh, if need, you know, we can get them some more tools and some more resources. So, you know, we're learning now that, you know, we have that ability and, you know, we can open that up to other areas where people don't even really have a biophysics provider where they could go see. And I am managing a couple of different cases from outside of the state right now where, you know, we got the information of uh, what we needed to put together home care tools and then got the people the, the tools that they need. And, you know, it's, it's a remote way of doing a lot of what we do in the office. You just need Apple now to release a home x-ray app. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, you know, the nice part is, is there's also there's imaging centers everywhere. We can, you know, do a virtual consultation with a patient. 
understand what's going on with them. We can have them send us some pictures to go through a postural analysis software program that we use. And then we can send them into a place like RadNet or Health Images or just an independent imaging center and get some x-rays to do the other analysis that we need so that we can give them some home traction or home stretch tools. Hmm, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, last topic I wanted to touch on. So you obviously have a business partner and also your wife works with you in the business as well. How His wife works with him too. Okay, great. The four of you. Yeah. So how have you best managed all of those different relationships throughout the business? How, what advice do you give to other business owners who are either in that same situation or similar or, or are considering being in that situation? For a while, we managed it fairly poorly. <laughs> and, you know, going, a lot of people would say going into business with your best friend is a pretty bad idea. I think that that could be true if you don't know how to really manage it. And for, I want to say it was about two years, Scott and I worked with an executive coach that we would work through different kinds of issues or problems that we would run in, into, not so much with the business, but with working with each other inside of the business. Um, and there were never like huge, horrible problems at all, but we could already tell that, you know what, this could become a problem if we're not proactive about it. And that's what we're all about is like, how do we, how do you solve a problem before it really becomes a huge problem? One of the tools that our coach had taught us that we still do to this day is number one, it's very, very clear who's in charge of what and who's responsible for different aspects of the practice or the business and what the reporting back to the other partner is in regards to those responsibilities. And so we try to make sure that we stay inside of our lane and not step on the other person's toes. And on a routine basis, when we're having our meetings after we've reported back and forth on, you know, different aspects that we're, we're working with and asking each other for help in certain areas, then we also kind of have a little bit of a clear out session where it's like, okay, is there anything that I'm doing that's getting in your way that I should just stop? Or is there any other thing that you can think of that I can do to help you or, or help you by just not doing? That's a really valuable, valuable tool because I think where most business partners will end up having a lot of strife with one another isn't because of one huge event. It's because of dozens or hundreds of little events right. that stack up on top of each other. So we've just learned to constantly, how do you clear that stuff out and make sure that nothing ever grows to be a big problem? That's wonderful advice. The executive coach, I think, is very useful in situations like that. Do you still work with an executive coach consistently or that was just something that most people learned? You know, we, um, we worked with him consistently for, uh, for about two years. And then he kind of agreed on this. He's like, you know, I'm just kind of sitting here now listening to you guys do it. And so I don't think you really need me on the consistent basis. And so we kind of tapered down how often we were speaking with him. And, you know, we still maintain contacts really more from just like kind of like the social pleasantries kind of a place at this stage. But in case we ever do need to hop on the phone and, and work, you know, we can do that. That's great. Yeah. Do you find those same skills then cross over into how you work with your spouses in the business? 100%, definitely. 
most definitely. And I, in fact, I mean, I think that's probably even more important in doing that with our spouses because, you know, I mean, at, at this point, you know, Scott and I joke that, uh, you know, Scott was my first wife and our, for the first baby was Posture Works. Um, and we're all, you know, the like feelings all, and the stresses and the emotions are very similar. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, we're all we're all family at yeah. this stage. You know, we care about each other so much. But, you know, working with your spouse, most people, you know, they they get done and or they, they go to work and they go to different places and then they get done with work and they go back home and they can have the conversation of, well, how was your day? <laughs> you know, when you work with your spouse, you don't really have that, you know, like we're always together. And I think that that could be a real challenge for a lot of people. But, the, you know, the, the same thing is kind of true with our spouses. We know whose responsibility is what. We try to stay out of each other's lanes as much as possible and, and you know, do kind of some of those same kind of clear out tools if there's an, ever an issue. And so I think it's it's even more important to do that stuff with your spouse because you don't have any of the time away from each other. In a previous episode, I talked to Kelly Ryder Goodwin, who has a divorce attorney practice, mm. and she talked about how her and her spouse don't work together a lot. They do a little bit, but not a lot. They have a rule, for instance, where if she talks about work at all at home, she's just always avoided talking about the details of the case. Mm. And in part, that's, I think, good mental wellness within her industry, because, of course, she has to deal with a lot of very sad and tragic things. Do you have any sort of rule like that in place where you might say, you know, let's let's try and not talk about work once we get in the car and leave the office? Um, we don't necessarily have like a hard and fast or even spoken rule about it, but I do think that we just kind of naturally do limit it. And especially around our kids, there are times when like one of us, it's just like, there's something on our head and we'll start talking about it. And it's like, Hey, Hey, you know, let's talk about that. You know, once, once the kids are in bed and it's right. like the other one immediately is like, Oh yeah, yeah, completely. We want to have the time with our family as being time with our family. And it's like, we work together and we do really well with that. And then we also, we are our time as a family and we try to keep the two separated though we don't necessarily have a spoken rule on it. This has been such a great conversation that we, apart from mentioning it by name, didn't even really get to talk about NutriWorks. Perhaps we have a mm -hmm. future conversation about that for the audience. Yeah. And um, for wrap up, will you let people know where they can find out more about PostureWorks and NutriWorks? Yeah. PostureWorks, the website is uh, posture-works.com. There's also postureworks.co.co that you can find out more about both of those. We're in San Francisco and in Denver, but there's a uh, chiropractic biophysics and practitioners that do that everywhere. Um, and you can learn about that on idealspine.com. And there's a, a directory on there. You can find a practitioner near you. And then NutraWorks is nutra-works.com. Wonderful. This has been great. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you, everybody, for watching or listening. As always, you can find out more at meetfireside.com. Click on the Smalls tab to watch all these episodes in video form or download us in podcast form from wherever you like to get your podcasts. Particular thank you today to OpenReal, that's R-E-E-L, OpenReal.com, for providing access to their enterprise platform so that Jason and I could record this with uh, better sound quality than Zoom is currently allowing with uh, all of its extra users right now. Jason, thank you very much. My pleasure. Thank you. Always good to see you.